You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning again. Let me do a couple of things I neglected to do last time I was up here. First, let me introduce myself. My name is Clint Wright, and I'm the director of family ministries here. Of uh, my wife, Melissa, we have two kids. We have a four-year-old and a one-year-old named Caleb and Hannah. And secondly, if you are a guest with us this morning, we want you to know that we are very thankful that you are here. We are honored by your presence. And so if that's you, we have a gift for you. So after the service, you can go back in the lobby back here. We have a guest check-in desk. You can just go back there, and we have a gift we'd like to give you. Just to say thanks for coming. We know there's a lot of ways that you can spend your day. We're glad you spend your morning with us. So let's get out our Bibles. We'll be in First Peter chapter 2. We ready to go? All right, there we go. Love it. First Peter chapter 2. Let's, uh, let's set the stage a little bit. Let's remember where we are. So we just finished with chapter 1. And all in chapter 1, we found out who, kind of who we are and whose we are. All that Christ has done in us and through us and for us. And, and Peter closes the first chapter by saying, hey, in light of that, in light of all that God has done, that should take shape in our lives. That should have an effect in our lives. And that effect is love for one another. That's how he ends it. And so he's going to pick that thought up here in chapter 2, kind of the flip side of the coin. So not only should there be things present in our lives, there should be things absent, things we should eliminate from our lives. And we'll pick up there. We'll go verse 1 through verse 8 this morning. And uh, from what I understand, the Super Bowl doesn't start till 5 o'clock, so we got plenty of time to get there, right? Back in 1984, the World Health Organization, for the first time, identified this phenomenon called sick building syndrome. And here's what happens. People build these buildings, sometimes office buildings, sometimes apartments, residential buildings. And something about this building became toxic to people. So people come in and they just start getting sick. Sometimes respiratory issues, sometimes even uh, bone and joint issues, heart issues. And they would investigate and there was no single cause. It wasn't like, oh, we use this material. You know, it's full of asbestos. That's the problem. Oh, they couldn't, oh, it's not like, oh, mold in the AC units. You know, it's blowing mold all over us. That's why everyone's getting sick. They couldn't find a cause. But there was just something about these buildings. Kind of the sum of its parts had come together, together to just form this toxic environment for people. And they didn't know what else to call it, but they called it, so they called it sick building syndrome. Well, today, Peter is going to talk about building and what we build. So the truth is, all of us, I mean, from very early on in our lives, we're builders, aren't we? We build lives and we build reputations, we build families, we build wealth, we build careers, we build success. We spend most of our lives building, right? And here's what Peter wants us to know, that if, if we're not careful, and in fact, often what we end up doing is though we have the best of intentions, though we build for all other purposes, we end up building sick buildings, buildings that are toxic to us and to the people around us. But he's going to get us, give us a solution. But here's the deal. It's not the solution that we as builders would normally take. It's not a quick renovation. Uh, it's not even a thorough renovation. It's something different. He's going to describe three processes for us this morning. Elimination, desperation, and satisfaction. Elimination, desperation, and a satisfaction. Now, I'm going to warn you, Peter is not afraid to mix metaphors. Okay? We're going to go through like five different metaphors, but these processes are the, are the same. Elimination, desperation, and finally, satisfaction. So let's open our Bibles and start reading. Verse 1. He says this, So put away all malice, 
all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So he starts off with kind of a clothing analogy, okay? He says, lay aside, put aside. This word means literally take something normal, something every day, and set, a, set it aside, remove it the way you would clothes. My guess is most of you are going to watch the Super Bowl this evening. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you've got plans to watch the Super Bowl. I know the youngs here, they're going to have their Bronco face paint on, the whole deal, right? My guess is you're not going to watch the Super Bowl in the clothes you have on right now. Most of us are going to go home and we're going to take these clothes off and we're going to set them aside. And Peter's saying there are things in our life we need to set aside in the same manner. So I want, I want to spend a little time on this list because, you know, maybe as I read it, you start reading the things that we're supposed to eliminate, this process of elimination that's supposed to happen. And you just kind of hear it and it's all jumbled together. Oh, it's just bad stuff. I get it, bad stuff. Remove all the bad stuff. But I want to take some time. And each of these words means say something very specific. And I'm, I wonder if you'll be courageous enough to, as I read these, examine your own life. I know, it's the hardest thing to do. But examine your own life. I mean, your own heart, your own actions. Are any of these, can you find any of these in your life anywhere, even just in the past week? So let's look at a malice. Malice, this is evil directed at another person with the intention of action. So it's more than just a bad vibe I'm putting out, okay? I wish evil on, on somebody, and I may not know when or how, or whatever. I, don't, I may not know the details, but at some point I'm going to act on it and I'm going to work for evil for that person. Deceit, cheating, scamming, fraud, maybe making something look a little bit better than it actually is, usually so I can gain and they can lose. Hypocrisy. This word comes from the stage. It comes from acting. It means wearing a mask. It means pretending to be something outwardly that I'm not actually inwardly. And almost every time this is used in Scripture, it's referring to acts of righteousness that I do outwardly, but that don't match the inward reality. And that's hypocrisy. Envy. This is jealousy. Dissatisfaction with what God has given you, and you want what something else has. And, but it goes a step further. Not only do I want what they have, I don't want them to have it. Right? So you go over to someone's house, someone who you know who's a jerk, and you walk in their house and they've got a really nice kitchen. You're like, how does such a jerk get in such a nice kitchen? I should have this nice a kitchen. I'm a great guy, right? That's envy. That's jealousy. I, I should have something that nice, and they don't deserve it, and they shouldn't have it. That's envy. Slander. You speak against someone. You attack their character verbally. This is, these are all the things that Peter says we need to eliminate from our lives. Notice how each one of these has to do with either harming another person or hiding something about myself. They're all about harming or hiding. And this is what we need to know. This is how each and every one of us build our lives. On some level, we're constructive. We, we build things, but on many levels, when we're trying to build our own building, y'all, we are destructive. Because look, nobody, nobody wants to have the smallest, dinkiest, most rundown house on the block, do they? No. Well, there's two ways I can make my house, my building look better. Number one is I can build it up. Number two is I can knock you down. And so that's what, that's what we do. We, we end up hurting others. Or at some point, and y'all, this always happens. 100% of the time, this will happen. The, the picture I have in my mind of what my, I want my life to be and to look like and what I want to look like to others, at some point, is not going to match reality. My building is start having issues. It's going to spring leaks. Things are going to get run down. And I've got to cover that up. 
And so I'm hiding, I'm deceiving, I'm practicing hypocrisy. I'm, I'm painting, over, painting over the holes in the walls and sweeping things under the rug. You know, this is how the New Testament explains how, what happens in our life. This is how we create this sick building syndrome. This is how we create a toxic environment with the way we build. He explains it. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, puts it very well. It says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You attack, you harm. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so the truth is, we, we spend a lot of our time and our life, and we're not trying to hurt other people. We're not trying to hide necessarily. We're just trying to add some comfort, add some pleasure, trying to make life work, trying to make this building work as best as we can. And the irony is, Y'all, we, we are creating our own toxic environment. This is what Peter wants us to know this morning. And, and this is where we have to stop. This is where we have to pause because, look, I'm going to take it for granted. Most of you in here don't want to create your own toxic environment. I'm, I'm going to assume when I talk about hypocrisy and envy, no one's like, man, I love all the envy and hypocrisy I have in my life. Love me some malice. I wish I could add more malice in my life, right? No, we don't, we don't want these things. We want to eliminate them, but usually we only know one thing to, to do to eliminate these things from our life. And that's try harder. Isn't that really sometimes the only tool in our tool belt? We see these things, we're like, oh, I hear you, Peter. I want to eliminate these things too. And really, all we know to do is try harder. No more envy. Next time I go in a kitchen, I'm not going to want his kitchen, you know? And that always ends in failure. Does anyone here listen to the podcast Serial? Do we have any Serial listeners in the house? Okay, like one person. This is great. So this illustration is really going to hit home. This is going to be perfect. Uh, well, you can imagine what it is. It's, a, it's a, uh, uh, just a podcast that uh, ha- has several episodes in a season. And each season they just cover one event, uh, one usually a crime of some sort. And they dig deep throughout the whole season and try to find out what happened. And so this season, they're talking about a guy named Bo Bergdahl, who some of you may have heard of. He's been in the news. Bo Bergdahl was a soldier in Afghanistan. And through a series of very crazy, very unfortunate events, he found himself as a prisoner of the Taliban for, I think it was five years, five or six years. And he, but he has since made it home. And I won't give it away. You can go listen to the podcast. It's really interesting. And so they're interviewing him. In one of these episodes, they're interviewing him about his time in captivity, his time as a prisoner. And he's talking about all the escape attempts he made. He made several escape attempts the whole way. And at the beginning of the episode, here's how he describes it. He says, hey, I was always, always trying to escape. It may have been a year between actual escape attempts, but in that year, I was plotting and I was trying to figure out where I was and how I could get away and trying to hide tools I can use and the whole deal until... One time, his last escape attempt went so terribly wrong, uh, was so difficult on him. He was, by that time, so malnourished and weak. He came back from that, and he was treated so poorly after that. He said, that was the time I gave up. From that moment on, I was no longer trying to escape. Listen, if you're here this morning, you, you want to eliminate some of these things from your life, and, and all that you know how to do is try harder, you're going to be like Bo Bergdahl. If you're not there already, you're going to be. And some of you are there. And some of you take a look at these, these toxic things in your life, and you don't, you don't want them there, but you have tried and tried and tried to eliminate those things, and you've maybe just given up. 
I've t- made too many escape attempts. Here's the reality for Bo Bergdahl. He was never going to escape by himself. Never. He was in the mountains of pa- Pakistan, right on the Afghanistan border. And that area, y'all, it is not controlled by Pakistan. It is not controlled by Afghanistan. It is not controlled by any government. It is only controlled by the Taliban. There was no way he was getting out of there. Even the U.S. military has a hard time getting in there. And they got to get in quick and get out quick. He was never going to escape. He needed a force bigger than himself, something outside the situation, to come and save him. See, what Bo Bergdahl needed wasn't another escape attempt. He needed desperation. The kind of desperation when you come that comes when you know you can't fix this yourself and you can't save yourself. And that's what Peter is going to show us and going to illustrate for us as we keep going. In verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. This book, 1 Peter, it, it doesn't have a lot of imperatives. Imperative is when I tell you to do something. Hey, go do this. Most of 1 Peter is all about what God has done. And we don't do it, but there are a few imperatives, and this is one of them. This is the key imperative of the whole passage. He's saying, hey, listen up. Here's something for you to do. Be desperate. This word he uses is long for, yearn for, be desperate for, crave. And he uses his analogy, this is great, because you don't need a preacher to tell you this, and you don't even need to be spiritual to understand this analogy. A baby crying for milk, Right? Many of you have a lot of babies at home. You know exactly what we're talking about. And all of us have seen this. Think about the last time you saw a baby crying for its milk. Y'all, we've got a one-year-old at home. We're, we're in this right now. I don't know that I've ever expressed as much passion for anything in my life as my baby girl Hannah does when it's time to eat. I mean, unashamedly, she's screaming, yelling, give me that milk. She's desperate for it. And then there's that moment where she sees the milk but doesn't have it yet, you know? And she can't walk to it or run to it, but she just leans her whole body. If you're holding her, she gets really wiggly, and she's trying to squirm in her head, her shoulders, her arms. Everything is leaning towards that milk. And you can do this game where you, like, hold the milk in front of her and move it side to side, and she... Not that I would ever torture my own daughter that way. You know what what Hannah doesn't do? She She doesn't look for milk out of a sense of, like, obligation. You know, mom, she made that bottle for me. You know, she really has high hopes for me drinking this bottle. I probably should. She didn't do it out of habit. You know, she's not trying to have a well-rounded life. Hey, you know, I've slept today. I've played a little bit today. 12 o'clock is always time I eat. So I should probably go ahead and get some milk. No, that, there's a craving in her that craves one thing and demands it and rises up in her, and she screams for it because that is the only thing in this world she needs. It's the only thing in the world that she wants. So is your, let me ask you, does anything about your relationship with Jesus have that sense of desperation? To where if you haven't had time with him, if you haven't experienced him, if you haven't known him for some time, that craving, that desperation starts to come up inside of you where you want him and you need him and you know you need him in your life? Or is it all discipline and duty and habit, obligation? Are you desperate for the gospel this morning? Or is that, that craving, has it, been, has it been dulled? 
Let's take a look at what he, what he calls this milk. He, he calls it this pure spiritual milk. Let's take a look at what it is. What it is we're supposed to long for. What it is we're supposed to be desperate for. What it is we're supposed to yearn for. He calls this pure spiritual milk. Well, in the milk. In the context, if you just back up a few verses in chapter 1, what's he talking about? He is talking about the gospel in verse 25. He talks about this good news that was preached to you. That's what the gospel means, the good news. And Ross told you last week, that's a reference to Isaiah. And think of all the prophecies in Isaiah. Of, hey, by his, by his wounds, we are healed. He bore our transgressions. Back in verse 23, he tells us, hey, you have been born again of imperishable seed. This is the gospel that we've been born again. This is what we're supposed to crave. And he calls it pure, singular not mixed with anything else, just pure milk. My four-year-old, Caleb, he, he started doing this thing lately where he mixes words together. And so he'll take a regular, normal English word and another regular, normal English word, and he jumps those up in his mind somehow and comes out with this new word. His, his favorite these days is he's found a way to combine unbelievable and ridiculous and now he calls things unbidiculous. I don't, I don't really know what that means. It seems to be pretty positive. Uh, so like he won a game or something, he'll shout, that was unbidiculous. And he loves it. He did it, he did it again last night. He did one last night. We were playing football, and he likes to pretend like he, you know, runs around, scores a touchdown. He scored a touchdown. I was like, Caleb, man, you were shaking and baking. He looks at me, he goes, yeah, Dad, I was shaving and bathing. Doesn't mean exactly the same thing, but, but okay. Isn't this what we do with the gospel? Isn't this our core issue, really, when you think about it? Is, yeah, we want Jesus. We want to be saved. We want, we want to be a good person. But you know what? We also want some other things to mix in there. Like the Nestle Quick I did when I was in elementary school. Hey, this milk is fine, but man, wouldn't it be better if it was like pink and loaded with sugar and kind of tastes like strawberry? This is the whole reason we have chocolate milk, right? Yeah, milk is fine, but man, what if we could make it filled with chocolate, right? You know, sometimes we come to the gospel and we're just like, what if we could sweeten it up a little bit? What if we could sweeten it up to where I'm never really asked to do anything I don't want to do and I'm never really too uncomfortable. I don't ever have to sacrifice too much and my life goes well and my life is successful or even better if I can, I can mix it in where I'm like right all the time. Don't you love being right? You know, like the, isn't that like the best thing ever? You know, you're in a disagreement with someone and you turn out to be the one that's right. I love that. Nothing better. So we started kind of, here's what we do. Start building our house and constructing a house so we can have these things that we like to mix with the gospel and we end up with all these false, false gospels. We end up with this gospel of self-improvement or social improvement where, where Jesus' whole role is to kind of make the, the ship float better, make everything operate a little better, make everything go a little smoother. We end up with this gospel of warm fuzzies. Really, my relationship with Jesus is about me feeling warm and fuzzy inside and being happy and having good experiences or this gospel of success. Where if I do what Jesus tells me to do and I do all the right things, then, you know, I may experience some bad things here and there, but on the whole, I will be successful. Things will go well. The gospel of my rights, where I, Jesus protects me from any kind of suffering or injustice. And these, these mixed gospels is what we end up building with our lives. But there's a problem. There's a big problem. Didn't Jesus say, through his own mouth, didn't Jesus say, you cannot serve two masters? Here's what's going to happen. If you try to do that, you will hate one and you will grow to love the other. 
You cannot serve two masters. This is what 2 Peter is calling for, men and women. It is calling for us to have a singular craving for one true gospel. A singular craving for one true gospel. Remember back, back in verse 1, the things, the elimination we're supposed to do? How much of those things are we supposed to eliminate? He repeats it three times. All, all, all. Why is that? Many of you, your life has been touched by cancer. And if you haven't, many of you have loved ones who have. And what's the first thing when someone goes into surgery to try to remove a cancer? What is the first thing you ask the doctor? Did you get it all? Did you get it all? Why? Because you don't even want a little bit of that in there because it's not going to stay that way. It's going to grow and it's going to spread and it's going to push out the healthy cells. Men and women, this is how it happens in our hearts. To switch back to our building analogy, I've heard real estate is about three things. Location, location, location. Well, you need to know Jesus and sin are in a fight for fidelity in your heart. And neither one is going to be content just letting the other one be there. They are going to fight to take over more and more real estate and build theirs bigger and bigger. The truth is both Jesus and sin demand fidelity. Both fight for control. And here's how they do it. With your cravings, with your desperation, with your desire. And so this, this is how these things that get in our life, this is how it becomes toxic to us is it dulls our craving. So we no longer are like that baby craving the gospel. We may not have any cravings. Or if we do, it may be craving. We, we want that chocolate milk instead of that pure milk. So what do you, what do, you do here? You know, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're, you're saying, you know, I wish, I wish I had that desperation for the gospel, that desperation for what can really save me and that desperation for what I really need. But if I'm honest, I'm just going through the motions here. Maybe you have been for a while. I mean, what do you do? We've already said, the solution's not just try harder, right? That's not, that's not what we do. I love, Peter just kind of throws in and aside here, and he's like, it's like he knows we can't just sit here and muster up more desperation, muster up more craving. And so he says this in verse three. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The way, the way that's written it assumes that it's true. It's, it's kind of saying, since you have tasted that the Lord is good, he's telling his readers, hey, all of you, you have had that taste of the Lord, and it was good. Listen, if, if you're here this, this morning and, and you're a believer, there's been a time in your life when Jesus was good to you, and you saw him, and you experienced him. And listen, you're, if you're going to walk with G Jesus for any length of time, there's one ability you need to have, and it is the ability to remember. Remember. So if that's you this morning, think back to the time when, when he answered that prayer, when you saw him for his fullness and how great he really is, or you opened his word and the Holy Spirit revealed it to your heart and your heart came alive. Talk about it. Journal about it. Meditate on it. Do whatever it takes to remember it. And, and here, if you do that, if you do that, pretty soon you'll remember that taste. You'll remember that good taste. And you'll feel this craving start to be awakened again. If you remember. So, okay, here we go. We're going to switch metaphors again. We've gone through elimination. We've gone through 
desperation because, hey, we can't, we can't bust ourselves out of here. We can't do all the things we need to do. We are desperate for the pure gospel, not just any gospel, not a diluted gospel, the pure gospel. And he's going to say in verse 4, he's going to switch kind of back to this building analogy, but there's an important connection here. He says this. Let's pick up in verse 4. As you come to him, okay, stop. I know, I know we didn't make it very far. As you come to him, see the connection to a baby crying for its milk? Who's that baby come to? The baby comes to its mother. And what happens when that baby comes to its mother? It is satisfied. It receives the milk. No mother rejects that baby. And the way this is written, this is not a one-time deal. This is not a uh, if you come to him or maybe one day you'll come to him. The way he's writing, he's writing to these believers. It's not uh, when you came to him in the past. It is as you come to him. It, it implies a regular coming to God in the past and one that will continue. The same way my daughter Hannah, several times a day, is going to keep coming to her mother for milk over and over and over again. This is what we do because when we come to Jesus, we, we are satisfied. When we come to him out of our desperation for the gospel, we are satisfied in him. Let's, let's see how that plays out. So let's keep going. As you come to him, a living stone rejected my men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we find out here in verse 4, there's another builder. It's not just me, and it's not you. That builder is God, and God is building something. And we find out what he's building out of, what his materials are. And he starts off with Jesus. He calls him a living stone. A living stone. Well, why is it living? Because Jesus is alive. Because of the resurrection, he lives. And he's painting a direct contrast to all the dead materials that we use to create all of our dead idols. And so back then, it was wood and stone and brick. Today, it's people, it's money, it's feelings, it's experience, it's all these other things that are supposed to be idols that are dead and not living. And he's saying, no, no, no. What, G what God is building with is Jesus who is alive. But wait a minute. Who, who does he call a living stone? Keep reading in, in verse 5. So Jesus, okay, Jesus is the living stone. We get it. And he says, you yourselves are like living stones. You yourselves are like living stones. So Jesus is a living stone. I'm a living stone. Jesus is a living stone. You are like a living stone. He, he's saying we are made up of the same stuff and used for the same purpose of the, the building of this house. Well, how is that possible? What, what's going on here? What, when we, when we think about our walk with Jesus, our life with Jesus, following Jesus, a process that we call sanctification, there's usually two questions that we ask ourselves, and both of them are not good questions. Both of them lead us to the wrong place. And the first question is this, hey, what can I do for God? Okay, God's done all this stuff for me, so what, what do I do for him? Now, now, how do I perform? How do I pay him back? How do I respond? What do I do for him? And what Peter wants us to know in these verses, y'all, is absolutely nothing. But don't I got to build a big altar to God? Don't I got to build something impressive since he did all this for me? No, no. He, this is what he said in Ezekiel 36. He says, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your dead heart, your heart of stone, and I'm going to put in it a heart of flesh. Colossians 1 says, here's our hope. Here's our hope, men and women, Christ in us. 
That is the hope of glory. Not Christ out there, not Christ outside of me. Christ in us is the hope of glory. Men and women, this is why the resurrection matters. This is why the gospel is not just Jesus died and you don't have to go to hell anymore. That's part of the gospel, but the pure gospel includes the resurrection. Now listen, not only gave life to Jesus Christ, it gives new life to you and me. This is why the Bible says when we are in him, we are new creations. We are given new life, and it is his life. That's why we, when we baptize someone, when we put them in the water, we say, you are dead to sin, but you are raised in newness of life. And so we get to be living stones. Do you see the satisfaction we get when we come to Jesus with what we need. He says, listen, I'm not going to like just do something for you. I'm going to change who you are. Deep on the molecular level, I'm going to give you my life. As my son would say, that's, that's unbidiculous, right? So let's look at what God is building. He, he says he's building a spiritual house. And so the second kind of wrong question sometimes we ask when we try to to follow Jesus is this. Hey, what's God doing in my life? Have you ever asked that? I ask that all the time. Hey, what's God doing in my life? I mean, how's he moving? How's he working? How's he doing his thing? Tells us what God's doing. He's he's building a spiritual house, but notice how many houses is he building? So if I follow Christ and you follow Christ and you follow Christ, is that a bunch of different houses? No, 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 no. There's one house being built. And this is what this house is. It's it's a spiritual temple. It is his presence among men. And so back in the Old Testament, God said, hey, my presence is going to be in this temple. It's a physical building. And that's where my presence was. And you got to come here and the priests have to be there. And that's where my presence is. But Jesus said, no, no, no. That's not what we're doing anymore. And so you read Matthew 14. He says this, I will destroy this temple. And he pointed to the physical, literal temple. He said, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days... I'm going to build another one. Three days, meaning by his resurrection. And this one is not made with hands. Paul describes what's going on this way in Ephesians 2. It's a great, great verse. He says this, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure joined together grows into what? a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so, y'all, biblically, sanctification is not just about what God's doing in me. It is what God is doing in us. See, this, this block here by itself is just a block. It's not a spiritual house. It's not a building of any sort. It is just a piece. It is meant to be combined with other blocks to form God's spiritual house. And I know that's tough. I know it's tough because I know people, right? But listen, if, you, if you're here and you've ever said something like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm great with Jesus. Me and Jesus are great. I follow Jesus, but I, I don't really do the church thing. Or maybe you haven't said anything like that, but you know, you come here and you hear the word and you worship and that, that is great. That is good, but it is incomplete. If you don't leave here and, and have some sort of relationship with people and if you're not serving, if you're not participating and while we are all being built in together, you're missing a big piece of the Christian life. Look, this is what Jesus said. He said it. John 14. He said, I'm going to give you the test. Here's the litmus test. If people know you are my disciples. He said, here's how they'll know you're my disciples. 
Not by you show up to church every Sunday. Not by, you know, you just, there's, here's the list of sins you don't do and you dress really well. None of that. Here's how they're going to know your disciples. By the way you love who? One another. According to the New Testament, there is, there is no record of a, a walk with Jesus that is not filled with one another's. Because we are all together being built up into a spiritual house. And when we do that together, that is God's presence on earth, not a temple made by man. So you see how we're, man, we, we've got to eliminate these things for our lives. We've got this toxic buildings we've built up and we realize we can't bust out on our own. We can't do anything. We can't renovate it on our own. And so we come to him in our desperation and he satisfies every need that we have. Okay, so... Pick it up in verse 6, y'all. Peter's about to get Old Testament on us a little bit, okay? He's about to get Old Testament on us a lot. In a very uh, just kind of rapid-fire, machine-gun fashion, he's going to give us three Old Testament quotes. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, hey, if you've gone through this process of elimination, desperation, satisfaction, here's what your promise is. And if you don't, here's, here's how that works too. So let's read. Picking up in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is a quote from Isaiah 28. And, you know, it talks about shame, and we, we don't talk about that a lot. Some cultures are really built on honor and shame. Our culture isn't that way. So let's talk about this. What does, what does it mean, won't be put to shame? I didn't know I was going to be put to shame. What's going on there? Well, here's what, here's what the shame is talking about. A shame is embarrassment. It's embarrassment that comes when our foolishness is revealed. It's our, when our foolishness is revealed. It, it's the old parable that Jesus told. A house built on the sand or a house built on the rock. And there's going to be a storm come. And many of us, when that, after that storm comes, we're going to find out, man, we put a lot of money, a lot of energy, a lot of stress, a lot of resources into building this building. And then the storm comes and that thing is gone. Not only have we spent a lot of construction, we've spent a lot of destruction on it as well. We've sacrificed our family. We've hurt others. We've deceived. We've practiced hypocrisy, all for something that isn't standing anymore. See, the Bible, there's this message that is all throughout Scripture. I mean, it's, it's in the Old Testament law. It's in the prophets. It's in the poetry. It's in the New Testament. Over and over and over again, there's something the Bible wants us to know. And listen, it, it's the feel-good message of the year. You're going to die. Doesn't that feel all warm and fuzzy? You're going to die. But the Bible says it over. Hey, your life is a vapor. It's a breath. It's a breath. That's it. That's all your life is. And it repeats it over and over and over again, almost as if it wants us to remember and knows that we easily forget, right? And y'all, the truth is, myself and many of us, we, man, we spend a lot of resources, a lot of our energy building things that are just, that's it. But not so for the ones who are built into God's spiritual house, because that house will stand for eternity, we will not be put to shame if we put our faith in that house. Because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says there's going to be a day, there's going to be a time when all the kingdoms of this world, my kingdom, your kingdom, all the governments, all the militaries, all the sport teams, all the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. 
and they will stand for eternity and there will be, we will not be put to shame. Let's keep reading in verse seven. It says, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. These are two quotes, one from Psalm 118, one from Isaiah 8. And this time he talks about Jesus not just being a stone, but a cornerstone. So here's what you need to know about cornerstones. Cornerstones, are the, they are foundational to any, any building in that the whole structure is built on top of them. And they set the course for what that, the rest of that building will look like, how it will function, what it will be able to do. If you don't get the cornerstone right, the rest of the building will be off. And so here's what a builder has to do. He has to have the plans for the building, know what the, he needs the building to look like and do. And once he does that, the thing he's going to do is pick out the cornerstone and make sure it is just right. Because it's going to determine the whole building and what it looks like. So why would a builder reject the cornerstone? That's what we said. He said, stone builder rejected. They rejected Jesus, the chosen and precious cornerstone of God, and it became a stumbling block for them. And and they eventually rejected it. Shouldn't a builder be more qualified than anyone to pick out a good cornerstone when he sees it? Doesn't they have more experience and knowledge and qualification than anyone to pick a good cornerstone? Well, yeah, there's only one reason a builder rejects a cornerstone, and it's because he has a different building in mind. It's because he is trying to build something else and something different. And this is us, y'all. This is our life. We come, we've been building for a while and we got our thing going and we're trying to, you know, we're trying to satisfy our cravings and make our life work. And then we encounter Jesus. We encounter this cornerstone. Compare with this building. Wait a minute. Where is this going to fit? It doesn't fit anywhere. Plus, I've been building for like 40 years. What do I need another cornerstone for? I don't need another cornerstone. And we will reject Jesus, if that's what we're doing. This is what Peter is telling us this morning. If you are going to accept Jesus, accept the cornerstone and be a part of the spiritual house, it will not coexist with our other houses. There needs to be an elimination. What you and I have to do this morning is knock the other buildings down. All, all, all. And let Jesus set the cornerstone down in our hearts. Because here's the truth, guys. We're not builders. God, our Heavenly Father, is the one true builder. And if you will let him this morning, he will give you life, make you a living cornerstone or a living stone and build you with other believers into his spiritual house that will remain for all eternity. Let me pray for us and then we'll have a benediction and be dismissed. Father, I I confess my impure gospels. I confess that I spend some of my days not pursuing you, not living for your gospel, pursuing my own comfort, my own pleasure, my own, my own building and trying to build my own structure, Lord. And we confess that none of those have the power to save us. Only you have the power to save us. And I pray for all of us this morning, Lord, as we head out these doors and we go about our, our lives, Lord, that we will live to be a part of your spiritual house, part of your temple, a part of your presence that is on this earth now and will remain for all eternity. Lord, we confess our desperation for you, our need for you. We need you to give us your new life. 
because we are, without you, we are dead in our sins. And so I pray also this morning, as, as we leave this building, as we leave this room, that those of us who know you and have been transformed by you, Lord, that we will reflect your presence in this world and that we will function as and be your spiritual house. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.